Hello, my name is Andrew W.K., and I'm just popping in to remind you that you're listening and partying to the great, big, beautiful podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... There's a poem in my collection that I think is probably the most boundary-pushing as far as what's acceptable in a kid's book. Um, it's a poem called Brotherly Love, wherein yes. the dad begs the daughter not to murder her brother. And that's just dark. Yeah. And there were there were things in that poem that at the very end of the process, some of the departments at Little Brown came back and said, like the library department, we're going to have a hard time getting this into libraries if we have the word cyanide in the <laughs> Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on all the socials at thegbbpodcast. You can download us from wherever you get podcasts. We are pretty much everywhere. I'm your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Robots. And also this week... It's Sherry again. Hi. Hi. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. We're talking music this week. I know. It's very exciting. This is very exciting. So I understand, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, but I understand that your husband was very jealous about this week's episode. He was so jealous, he's still talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) So he's a fan, I I take it. He is a huge old 97s fan and an extra huge Rhett Miller fan. So I'm going to be straight up honest. I, I mean, I had heard of the old 97s for the longest time, but I had never really listened to them. Um, it, it's not the kind of music that I routinely go to, which is ironic because now that I've listened to them a, a lot, I really like it. And it makes sense because I really like Wilco and I really like mm-hmm. um, Uncle Tupelo and, and you know, th- that kind of band. And old 97s is very much in that vein. So it makes sense that I would like them. I just, for some reason, never listened to them and, until very recently. John and I are pretty big fans. Um, we both are, actually. And they come through Pittsburgh a lot. Um, Rhett Miller comes through solo, and they come through as a band. He did a song with Brandy Carlisle that I cannot remember the name of right now, but which I really love. You should be scared. I'm not so I um, have been listening to his most recent solo album quite a bit, uh, and I, I really dig it. It's really, really good. 
It's just so funny, though, because the old 97s are um, very much like, I got really drunk and I got really high and I slept with this chick and then she left me. And uh, then Rhett went and wrote a a book of children's poetry. Yeah, it's kind of strange, (laughs) right? So, yeah, the reason we talked to him this week is not because of his music, although we do touch on it a little bit. But ironically, based on what you just said there about the music, he has a new book of children's poetry out, which is hilarious. Yes, and it was super cute because he said we were his first interview that focused on the poetry and not on the music, and he was very excited about that he was very excited i love being uh first it doesn't happen too often with this show but uh we were the first time that he had an interview pretty much devoted to the book uh he said you know he's he's mentioned it in past interviews but those were really about his solo album that just came out uh but he has got a book uh with dan santat who did all of the art in any book that Dan touches, if you've listened to our interview with him way back when, um, you know any book that he touches is gold anyway. But Rhett's poems are just... They're, if if you like the Shel Silverstein style of poetry, you're going to love this book. Yep. Yeah. So it's called No More Poems. Uh, and it's... Every poem is very much in that Shel Silverstein vein, where it's sort of like it's 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 funny. It ends on a on a laugh. It ends on a gag. It's about sibling rivalries. It's about fart jokes. It's about um, bathroom humor, dark humor, um, very dark in places. I mean, we, we he mentions this that it was a couple places that it was so dark. The publisher said maybe we should pull back a little bit. <laughs> but you know. And we talked to him as we've talked to several other authors recently. Um, that is a, a growing trend in children's literature, and it's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important for kids to be able to express that safely and for them to know it's okay and for them to know that that's a thing that exists, but it can still turn out okay in the end. Yeah. That can be a part of life and your life can still be okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not like kids don't think about dark topics. You know, it's not like they don't think about things that scare them, whatever that be, whether it's the dark or monsters or losing a loved one, you know, whatever yep. their experience takes them, they're going to think about those things. And the books that they <laughs> read. your brother. Yeah. I mean, older sis. I have an older, an older daughter. I had an older sister. And I know that that's very much what goes through their mind sometimes. <laughs> I am the oldest sister. <laughs> Um, in, in case you're unaware, that is one of the poems. He actually, we ask him at, at the end of the interview, so stick around. He does read that one for us. Uh, it is about, it is it is a, a parent talking to the daughter about how she needs to play nicely or at least not kill her little brother. At least not murder her little brother. <laughs> uh, but if you do nothing else, I mean, I really do hope that you listen to the entire conversations cause, conversation because it's really great. But um, do stick around toward the end because we get a live reading from Rhett uh, with that poem. And he really does bring it alive. Uh, but No More Poems comes out in... March 3rd. March 3rd. Thank you for doing the homework. March 3rd, it comes out, so it's not quite out yet, but you can absolutely go pre-order it now, or if you're listening to this after March 3rd of 2019, you can go ahead and buy it. It's already out in the world. Uh, Rhett wrote some hilarious poems that will probably literally have you laughing out loud. 
Dan Santat's art is phenomenal as always. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's pretty much all I got because like this book and his poems and the art kind of just speak for themselves. Like if you don't see this book and want to pull it off the shelf right away, there's something wrong with you. And for those of you who aren't great with names, um, Dan Santat did, uh, Beagle. Beagle, the adventures of Beagle. Is one example. Yeah. He won, he won the Caldecott for that. He has done a lot of, uh, picture books. He worked with Dave Pilkey on a graphic novel series he has done um, a lot of books. He has written and illustrated a lot. He has just lent his art to a lot of books. But, you know, if you go to his website or just follow him on Twitter, he has a ton of books. And he is, he is one of the superstars of picture books right now, of children's art. And the story of how they got hooked up is kind of funny, too. It is kind of funny. Yeah, they just... You know, in, in the nicest possible way, the naivete that Red had about publishing. And he's like, oh, this guy has some good art. Maybe we could get him, <laughs> not knowing who he was. <laughs> um, but yeah, so thank you guys for sticking around, coming back week after week, hitting subscribe, listening to all of these fantastic conversations. We have so many more good ones coming up in the next few weeks. So if you don't already subscribe, please go ahead and do that. You're going to be hearing from actors, musicians, artists, authors, directors, you name it. We got them coming through. And uh, if you've listened to any of our show before, you know that we tend to have, if I do say so myself, kind of insightful conversations. We don't just um, uh, go into the weeds with with particular books or projects and ask them about specifics. But we, we, we pull back and we give a... 30,000 foot view of their career and uh, their their creative process and how they got to where they are. So hit subscribe if you don't already. Thank you guys for talking about us. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week. Here's our conversation with Rhett Miller. Take care. Um, I guess this is, this is a little bit different for you. I'm sure you've you're well versed in the music interviews, but talking about children's books is probably something that you've had to get used to. But talk to us a little bit about the path that led you from the proverbial sex, drugs, and rock and roll to children's poetry. <laughs> but it's funny that you bring that up because, as I know, as my uh, editors are trying to book engagements for me at bookstores and schools. I have this fear that they're going to Google me and realize that <laughs> I've made a living for decades singing about all sorts of inappropriate uh, yeah. issues. Yeah. That were. Um, I have kids of my own and um, my life has slowed down. Like I, I always um, acted things out in songs a lot more than I did in real life. Like the, um, the more uh, self-destructive impulses were you know, were more sort of more true in the lives of my narrators than in my own life, which is probably why my band has been a, together for 25 years and I've survived all of these years and outlived a lot of my contemporaries. I just feel like it's better to act out your demons in a safe space than maybe in real life. So, yeah. um, so I came to this place with kids poems and this is my first interview where I've discussed, um, the book oh, really? as, yeah, as the main topic, I've done a number of interviews for the solo record I just released where towards the end of the interview, they would ask me with some kind of incredulity. like, So <laughs> what are you doing putting out a kid's book? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, but so my kids, were, they're now 15 and 12. So Lay's about to be 13 and Max is 15. And so they're very much teenagers now. 
But there was a time, this really sweet window, when they were really aware, conscious, um, not adults, but their but their brains were like firing on all cylinders, and they were super engaged. And now they are, but they don't want to be engaged with me as much as they once did. But so during that really sweet window between, I don't know, six and eleven, you know, they 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 they're just so much fun. Yeah. In general, they are. But during those years, um, before they they were just really discovering to this thing that they've now taken to an extreme where they roast me. You know, they love <laughs> they love to tear me down and make fun of me. And it's a and it's a safe place for them to try that stuff out. And they know that there's nothing that they could say that would make me not love them. Yeah. You know, so it's really it's a it's sweet to see them like flex those muscles and just kind of you know, get away with stuff that in that they know because they're good kids that in the real world they can't get away with saying these things to people. <laughs> but so we were reading a lot of Shel Silverstein as most families do, and we were reading a lot of Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. Um, I I actually got excited about and played them a bunch of Tom Lehrer, who was this sort of 1950s Harvard math professor turned novelty songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and that's sort of the less obvious influence in the batch. Um, also Edward Gorey, Edward Gorey was big. And so all of those together made us so happy because it gave us something that we could bond over and laugh about together. And, um, and then I would leave to go on tour and I wasn't there to read with them during bedtime. And, and they didn't really want to spend a lot of time looking at me on a phone screen, but I figured out that if I, wrote poetry in the style of these poets that we had bonded over and loved together that they would be willing to maybe not just listen to the poems but if i presented them as works in progress and i needed their critique Mm. and i was encouraging them to criticize me they got so excited and they gave me a lot of really good feedback and they were not only my first readers but my first editors and you know the stuff that they said right off the bat their instincts about what worked and what didn't work was so invaluable in the poem that I would be reading to them, but in also as I moved forward, writing future poems for them. They just, they really inspired every poem in this book and then guided each of them to what they are in their finished form. Wow. I mean, songwriting obviously is, is basically the same thing as writing poetry. You are writing poems, but you're just setting it to music most of the time. I had a fight with my junior year English teacher about that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> were you were you on the side that that songs are poems? I I was, and we had to bring poems in to read, and I kept bringing songs, and she said, <laughs> "You have to stop bringing songs." I said, "No, because songs are poetry," and we had we had a big fight about it. That's so silly. <laughs> why why would a teacher just say no anyway? Why not encourage if you're excited about something? It depended who I was bringing. Like, I got away with Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary, but when I started bringing more modern stuff, that's when she tried to tell me I couldn't do it anymore. (laughs) That's how they get you. (laughs) But, I mean, okay, so how similar is the process for you? If you, like, sit down to write a song or when you sat down to write some of these poems? Obviously, the topics are going to be a little bit different, but the process that goes into it. Um, It's always been so hand in hand for me the the process of writing poetry which i did a lot in high school and then um at a certain point you realize that 
there's just not a lot of interest from the world in writing poetry. And and I love poetry and I have friends that write poetry and I and I'm I hope we live in a world where poetry never goes away even for adults, you know. Um the recent passing of Mary Oliver, I think, uh brought it back to the forefront of a lot of people's minds and made them rediscover how brilliant she was. And it's it's something that you do that I think the best songs are then able to do where if you can take a little rhymed couplet and just a few perfectly chosen words and hang an entire story or an entire life or an entire character off of those few well-chosen words, you can do the work that a novel takes hundreds of pages to do in a really short time. Um, and so I did, I did, I tried that a lot in high school. I think that my attempts were, you know, they were very early. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, even the, the records I started with when I, I made a record in high school and, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't hold up now, but I think like with all probably forms of art or maybe any discipline, you have to work through your early mistakes to get to your later successes. So um, I transitioned from poetry into songwriting because I really saw them as being hand in hand, but I thought songs just had a lot more cachet. I felt like I could walk up to strangers and go, yeah, man, I write songs for a living. And I wouldn't get laughed at like, oh, yeah, I'm a poet. Oh, yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but so then then it was very much like an act of retrofitting to go back with my kids, because originally I did not think of these as being despite what I told my kids. I didn't think that I was going to go make a book of poetry and release it into the world and then go on shows and talk about my poetry. Like this was not this was not a long con for me. Yeah. you know. <laughs> so um, but it was really fun going back in because the instincts are very much the same you know it's rhymed couplets it's trying to find words that are that can carry weight and um and tell stories and the fact that they were for kids also i found was a really in a way like a sweet um uh like it it kept me from doing the things that i'd uh come to lean on as crutches in my music where i know that if i'm if I'm lost for words or if I need something, if I feel like I need something powerful, I can go to an image that's a really adult image, you know, wherein someone uh, messes up their life or makes a really bad choice. I can go to that image and get a lot out of it because mm. my audience will raise their beer and cheer along or whatever. But with a kid's thing, you really have to be careful because, you know, these are kids and and we love them and they're all going to grow up and it's it, – I, I don't shield my kids from a lot of stuff. I've really let them. I like. I think it's the idea of letting your kids be exposed to germs so that they develop immunities. Right. You know, my, my kids know all the words they're not allowed to say. And every once in a while they'll say them. And it's not the end of the world. They never say them at school. You know, they do. They're, I just think it's. Home words it's, and school words. <laughs> exactly. Home words and school words. But so the writing the poems wasn't a big stretch. But it definitely pulled me in, dire- in brand new directions that I really feel like have then benefited after the fact of the songwriting I've done since then because because I just see the stories more as stories and less as, oh, I'm going to construct you know a bunch of images and then hope that someone builds their own story out of it. It's been a lot of fun. I don't know. It's a whole new discipline, and it's yeah. really been great for me. Yeah. I think, I think one of the reasons that people tend to 
sort of shy away from poetry is because it tends to be sort of, or they, in their opinion, what they read in school is sort of stodgy and formulaic though. And this is very much not like <laughs> there are really great fart jokes in here and I'm 40 and I still appreciate a really good fart, fart joke. Um, how did you go about, you know, taking the traditional format and really making it yours? You, you mentioned Shelf Silverstein. Did you have any other particular inspirations or anything you tried to stay away from? Well, you know, it's funny, like you mentioned, I grew up thinking that there was nothing worse than stodgy poetry and um, like Robert Frost. I couldn't believe how much I hated Robert Frost. And it's funny because now going back, I'm like, what was wrong with me? You know, there's, <laughs> Robert Frost is not the enemy. Yeah, we no, are all he, together. He's far from the worst poet there is. <laughs> oh, yeah. So far. I grew up with a friend whose father was friends with Robert Frost and Robert Frost used to come read his poems as bedtime stories and. No way. They were wow. good bedtime stories, apparently. So, yeah. <laughs> Perspective. But, uh, exactly. So, um, yeah, like the Shel Silverstein, Edward Gorey, Roald Dahl, those were like the main three. And then, like I said, going back and finding the Tom Lair that my dad had been such a big fan of, um, there's a poem in my collection that I think is probably the most boundary pushing as far as what's acceptable in a kid's book. Um, it's a poem called Brotherly Love, wherein yes. the dad thanks <laughs> the dad begs the daughter not to murder her brother, and that's just dark. Yeah. And there were there were things in that poem that at the very end of the process, some of the departments at Little Brown came back and said, like the library department, we're going to have a hard time getting this into libraries if we have the word cyanide in the poem. <laughs> and and then actually there the the. The line that always killed the most when I would read it to kids was the line about poke his brain bone with a knife. They made me take that out just because I think the image was so grisly. Mm -hmm. So I had to soften that one a little bit. Um, there were a couple. Uh, anyway, that poem was directly inspired by a Tom Lehrer song called the Irish folk song, the Irish lament. Um but it was, uh, she drowned her brother in a well, sing rickety tickety tin. She drowned her brother in a well. For a week, the water tasted like hell. We all had to make do with gin. So it was not a kid's song <laughs> at all. But it was sort of a spoof of an Irish sort of kid's song. And um, so there was a lot of that. Like, I really think, I mean, I know when I was growing up, there was still this hangover from past generations where kids' literature was really dark like there was really grisly uh especially in, in the illustrations you would see just a a lot of stuff going on that you never would see anymore you know like um uh i think dan santat my illustrator in the on the book just posted something a couple of days ago um of an old kid's illustration and it's like this scary looking guy with scissors and then he's chasing a little kid who's got a missing thumb and blood drip you know like stuff that was de rigueur for kids in the you yeah. know 1950s no longer happens but i do think that kids live in a world where they should feel safe but it's also kind of really exciting for them to think about the things that are more you know mortally uh like they have mortal stakes so i wanted there to be things in the in this collection that really dealt with kind of darker stuff because kids think about that and we can ignore it all we want but i think it would be to our benefit to address it and say like hey, there's healthy ways around these darker impulses. Please 
please tell me that you're going to have like an album of this. You're going to put these to songs because I like some of them, you know, they, they have a musical quality to them and I could, I could hear almost the songs being sung and I think it would be a hilarious album. <laughs> uh, that, that is, um, that is a bridge that I will have to cross. Like right now I'm philosophically <laughs> opposed to making a kid's record because once you make a kid's record, oh, it's you, downhill. You just don't really get to go back. Like yeah. oh, there's only one band that's gone kids and then come back from kids, uh, and they might be giants. We're mm-hmm. already basically mm-hmm. a kids band, but um, one poem in this collection started as a song that I would sing to my kids when they were in the bath, when they were so little that they would, you know, they, when they're so little they could take baths together, and how cute that is. Right. Um, but disco bath party was a song. I would go in with my guitar and I'd sing disco bath party, disco bath party, disco bath party, disco bath party. <laughs> So that would be a song if I were to make a kid's record. <laughs> Although it's funny that you say that because they're asking me when I do these readings for the book, will I want to bring a guitar and play guitar? And I'm like, ah, I don't want to do that. That's my regular job. Right. But then I started thinking if I were to do that, I could pretty much take every one of these songs and turn them into a, I mean, po- poems. Yeah. There's a Freudian slip right there. <laughs> and, and turn them into songs and perform them at the thing. I just, I don't know. I really like them being... Spoken word. Sure. Yeah. Brett so, Miller says, "Ugh, that's my day job." <laughs> <laughs> so, are you doing a book tour for this? Yeah, it's it's not one continuous thing. It's going to be a lot of like a week on the West Coast, a week at in Texas for the big Austin uh, Library Convention, uh, St. Louis for a week. Uh, the nice thing about my job is that I'm able to schedule, you know, proper rock and roll shows around book events that they think are important for me to hit i've already had to cancel a big family vacation to jamaica to go to the texas library convention in april that the kids are pretty mad about i'm sure the the librarians will be appreciative though (laughs) (laughs) i mean how does how does that compare though like it's got to be a whole new world going to like a librarian convention or a a bookstore full of kids who have come to listen to you read poems. That's totally different from the day job, right? But I know a lot of librarians through Book Riot and they are some wild ladies. Let me tell you. (laughs) I can only imagine at this point because it hasn't started yet. Okay. It comes out March 5th. And a week after that, I go to St. Louis for a book convention. Um, you know what I have done over the years is I've gone into my kids' classes when they were younger. Now they're like, no, Dad, no way. We're way too embarrassed to have you show up in my school. But um, and, and, and I've gone into my nephew and niece's school down in Austin. So I've gone in and, and play, mostly played guitar for kids. But a lot of that, too, is talking and setting it up. And I've discovered tricks that you do to engage the kids. Like I'll say, I have a song called Question. And in my song Question, it's never explicitly stated you know, what the question is or what the, even the scenario is. Um, so I say that it, this song's called Question, and that when I finish it, I want you to raise your hand and tell me why you think it's called Question and what is the question. And so then it gets them to really pay attention and listen, and, and at the end of it, they've all got different ideas. And I did realize, because I would get a big laugh for a while, I'd, say, I'd finish the song and I'd say, okay, um, what do you think? And then some little kid would go, will you marry me? And I'd say, well, I'm already married. <laughs> And then I realized that that's weird. So I had to stop doing that. But I mean, I'm going to have to learn a lot of that stuff. Like I said, nightclubs are a lot more forgiving about what you can say. I just got to be really cool about it. So that, that leads me to ask you, though. 
the the poem Rockstar Dad. Is that based on conversations you've had with your kids? Oh, straight up. My kids, <laughs> since the day my son could walk, his, his number one thing to do if I'm playing guitar is walk over and put his hand on the guitar strings and say, shh, shh, that's enough, Dad. No more. No singing. <laughs> so I, I think there's an element of they see it as being, um, you know, like a, a threat, something that they, they have to sort of fight over my music. It's, it's you know, competition. So, um, but they're also just wildly unimpressed with what I do. Um, I love that. Last, last summer I booked a tour through California and I, I, I had a San Francisco date and an LA date. Uh, it wasn't a tour, it was a family trip and we were going to camp and we we're going to do all this fun stuff, but I thought I'd pay for it with these gigs in the North and Southern California. And, um, the, the Northern California gig I booked was at a club called the chapel, which is this really beautiful club in the mission district. And it's got a VIP balcony that's off of the dressing room. And I specifically booked that club so that my kids would come out of the dressing room, sit in this VIP balcony above the side of the stage, and be able to look out over this sold-out room of all these people singing along with my songs and and see what I do and see that it's you know valuable and worthwhile and that it means something to people. They never even came out of the dressing room. <laughs> In fact, in the dressing room, they had headphones in listening to the music that they actually like. <laughs> I love hearing that. I love it. doesn't matter how successful you are, how famous you are. You're still just dead. And you're, you're just an embarrassment from beginning to end. <laughs> it gives the rest of us hope. You know, it makes us feel better. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. I had to get Max's permission to include that one because the character in it is so obviously Max. My son. I had to run it by him. And it's funny too because the, the the dad in the in the illustrations that Dan Santa did, the dad doesn't look anything like me, which I'm grateful for because I think it's weird. But the son is very Max, like he's just like rolling his eyes, little toe-headed cowlick, kind of, you know, cooler than thou. Oh, that's so funny. Well, Do you, you ever catch them listening to your music, not wanting you to know, or that just never happens? Yes, and and I realize that they do it when I'm not around because something will come up and it's some song that I'm sure they've never heard, and they'll quote it back at me, and, and it's really sweet because I know <laughs> that they don't want me. They think it would be uncool if they admit that they like it, so they have to make sure that I don't because they don't want it to go to my head. They right. don't want me to think that they're impressed. Like God forbid, but um, but it's it's really sweet. I I know that they like it, and every once in a while they'll bust out some quotes or they'll tell me what their favorite song is um or or what i find out after the fact is that their friends will be like going on and on about how cool and they'll be like dining out on it they'll be like yeah my dad's really great but come home and pretend that that is not a thing at all yeah. oh no that never happened no 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 no, no. <laughs> so who do they listen to my daughter was pretty much only taylor swift for years but she's now branching out to kind of taylor swift adjacent mm -hmm. music my son is very much into hip hop, um, primarily Lil Uzi Vert. For a, a while, it was Lil Yachty until I asked him, like, please, Max, you can't <laughs> kill me. The Lil Yachty is so inappropriate. And the way he discusses women, like, we have to talk about this. And he's like, Dad, I'm just listening to the beat. And I'm like, I know, but you're hearing. Yeah. You know, it's a tricky thing. And I, I have to let it be him. If I, if I put my foot down and say, you're not allowed to listen to this, then it becomes that much more you know, appealing to him. Mm -hmm. So I just, I have to let him be him, but I have to constantly check in and make sure, you know, I, the, my favorite thing about the era in which we're living is the fact that we're talking about 
raising our kids to to avoid toxic masculinity, to be like actively aware of who they are in relation to this thing that has been a part of our culture for so long and unspoken. And I feel like my son is really good about that, but he does at the same time listen to a lot of hip hop music that talks about things that scare me to death. But I remember listening to Ozzy Osbourne sing about Satanism, mm-hmm. and I was not biting the heads off pigeons and worshiping Satan. So, and I my gotta... my parents tried to ban Guns N' Roses and Skid Row, and I would just sneak it. <laughs> yeah, I turned out okay. <laughs> um, returning to the book for a few minutes. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned Dan. How did you? We, we... Jamie's known me for a long time, and he's like, "What?" <laughs> no, yeah, I, I could see it though. It makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> um, we've had Dan on the show. He's a great guy. But how did you get hooked up with him? Was that did the did the publisher put you together, or or did you request him, or how'd that work out? Not at all. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Um, I have a friend, Ben Acker, who's a really great writer. Does yeah. a show called Thrilling Adventure Hour, and I'm actually I keep encouraging Ben. To, I think he would write because his his voice is very wry, and mm-hmm. I think he would write young adult novels like nobody else. I think he'd be so great. Well, he and but Ben he and Ben Blacker why? are writing Star Wars That's young right, adult Star novels. Wars. Those are YA. I keep forgetting. Yeah. That's right. And those are really great. They're really um, great. But so uh, Ben Acker was on a podcast, the name of which I am not going to remember now. I think it's called The Good Read. It's about it's a writer's podcast. Ben Acker was on it. Um, and told me about it. He thought it was great. Um, and so I went and listened, and Dan was on it. And this guy, Dan Santat, I'd never heard of him. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm not super well versed in the kids' world. Um, but his interview was so moving. And he sounded really like somebody that I would get along with. He sounded like he would get the, the, the vibe I was trying to go for with my poems. And I just thought he sounded really cool. So I went to Megan Tingley, my editor at Little Brown. And I said, I discovered this guy. I think he'd be really great. <laughs> she goes, yeah, you know, Dan Santat is like the number one illustrator in in the children's world. And I don't think we're going to get Dan. <laughs> He's about as busy as they come. And I was like, well, maybe you could at least just ask, ask him. Right. And um, they asked him and sent him a copy of the PDF and he got it. And it, it just it worked with his schedule and. He said yes, and I never had a conversation with him. In fact, I was pretty sure that they were actively keeping Dan and I apart because <laughs> they didn't want me like going around them to request changes. I think they were trying uh. to look out for Dan. Maybe they were walking on eggshells a little because they knew that we'd gotten really lucky landing this Caldecott medal yeah. winner who was so brilliant and also so busy. Um, but we did wind up in Austin together one night at the end of 2018 I had a show there and it was the same night there was some sort of a book convention, children's book thing. And his party that he was um, attending with friends of mine was in the next room from the venue where I was performing. And they brought him over and we finally met and we realized that we were peas in a pod. We both yeah. grew up really loving the same kind of music. Our sim- you know, And it makes sense you know, after the fact, but our sensibility was so similar. And so now, of course, we're great friends and I love him so much. I can't imagine doing any, you know, working with anybody else moving forward because why, why would I ever want yeah, to? Yeah, where do you go best. from there, from here, you know? <laughs> yeah. I got so lucky. And he was really so generous with his willingness to, you know, send like early sketches and then do, um, you know, uh, 
take after take is that's how I think of him. I know in illustration there's different terms for it, mm-hmm. but he would do um, art art after art, and he was willing to take notes and change things, um, even really like little tiny things. He was so great about it and so so sweet and generous with his time. I yeah, I I won the lottery getting Dan on board. Yeah, no, he's fantastic, and I mean the it's it's kind of remarkable that you said that you didn't really have a whole lot of direct interaction with him during the process of 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 actually making the book because i mean it it looks like he just he he nailed it like he just got it in so many of those poems like he just knocked it out of the park and i mean i don't know how much back and forth there was through the editor or the through the publisher but it looks like you guys just worked intimately together on those well yeah like i said and i think it's that kind of thing where the fact that i found him through other means and um and they would never have even thought to ask him it just i mean i i really feel like now moving forward if i was to talk to anybody else in a situation like mine i would say don't think anybody's out of reach you know mm-hmm. just you know don't 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 assume and I, it's like this i remember when i was growing up one of and i think a, a few of the poems address this issues like this when i was growing up i i never believed in myself in a lot of ways and i always i think i sold myself short I was really insecure about a lot of stuff and I, I would think, well, they don't want to talk. They won't want to talk to me. I won't even go try to talk to them. And it's that thing where with my own kids, I think I've done a, I've done a really good job. <laughs> my, my wife and I have gotten really lucky in that we have these kids that are really self-assured and they really know that they have value and they know that if somebody has an issue with them, it's because of that person having an issue with them. They, you know, they they are the kind of kids where they're not going to do stuff to earn anyone's disdain. It's going to be uh, undeserved. And so they're, they're never afraid to talk to people and they're never afraid to maybe ask for something that there's, you know, that maybe they're going to get it. And and so with Dan, I really felt like that reinforced something that I was really late in learning. Mm-hmm. It's something that I realized this year, too. I had the chance to meet um, a writer I really admire at Rose City Comic Con. There was no line at her table. She was sitting there signing stuff. And I went up and said hi and kind of like lost my cool and fangirled at her and felt like an idiot. And then saw her fangirling at someone else on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> and tweeted to her, you know, she's like, I have no chill right now. And I'm like, you know what? It's really nice for me to see you have no chill because I met you at a con and fangirled at you and was totally embarrassed. She's like, no, see, we all do it. It's totally cool. So, you know, it's the same kind of thing, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I don't think you would have to be a monster to really be put off by someone who appreciates you. (laughs) Yeah. I try to remember that all the time. Yeah. Are your kids musicians or writers or are they, are they, are you creative in in a way that you are? Um, my 15 year old son is really into engineering. Okay. I think his, his expressed dreams to date have all centered around something that's creative, but in a way that I do not understand at all, but, um, I could see him doing really well at it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I could see both of them being musicians because I, I'm probably projecting, but I also see things that they do that sort of, um, uh, seem like precursors to some sort of accomplishment as a musician. Um, but they have both come to me and said, Dad, no offense, but I am not doing music for a living. <laughs> I'm holding out a little more hope for Soleil, who's 12, um, although she is adamant that music is not in her future. 
she still she sings like a bird. She still has a ukulele on the wall of her bedroom that she picks up and plays. Um, but she, even more than Max, has her path already completely figured out. She's going to um, be the valedictorian of her school. She's going to go to Stanford undergrad. She's going to go to Harvard Law. She's going to go to Chicago and get an internships um, uh, at the legal firm where Barack met Michelle Obama. And then she's going to run for Senate. And then she's going to run for president in 2042. Like she has wow. it all. I know. I I'm just, impressed. I just, I just want to tell her, like, take a deep breath. Everything's okay. <laughs> I, I've always been impatient, so I could see that in her. Too. Do you feel like some of that is is them having seen some of the harder aspects of of the musical road life? Oh, a hundred percent. They they know how much I miss them, and and that's by far the hardest part of my job. Um, they know. You know, it's I, I I came of age during a time when there was still a music industry, and then at a certain point the music industry collapsed while I was in it, which is a terrifying thing. Um, I've been able to withstand that collapse, and I still am able to feed my kids with songs, which is crazy. And I'm kind of one in a million. Um, I think my kids recognize that, despite the fact that I'm in like the top one percent of working musicians. It's still we still struggle every month. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm fine. I'm great. Don't worry about me. But, but it's still it's it's a hard job and it's there's no big savings. There's no security. So I think they see that. But on by the same token, I think they recognize that I've been able to do a job that I love. And every time I go to work, other than the fact that I really miss them and their mom, I really really love what I do. And that people appreciate what I do and that it affects people's lives in a way that makes it seem like it has value beyond just putting food on our table. And um, so I I believe that they will make a point as they grow up to do something that they love. Um, and especially if, even if it's not music, that's fine with me. As long as they love it and they're not just doing it to try and get rich. You know? You've been doing this for a while. I mean, you, you yourself said earlier that you started playing music when you were in high school and, and putting out albums. And so, I mean, you've you've seen the industry change, evolve, and like you just said, collapse. Um, and, I mean, knowing the industry and knowing the lifestyle and how, on the one hand, how fulfilling it is, but how risky it is as well. I mean, if your kids came to you and had a change of heart and said, I wanted to pursue this whatever performing career, and whether it's music or acting or, or something that is similarly unknowable would you recommend it coming from where you are? Um, I mean, I think my whole life has been in essence, a recommendation of the artistic life. You know, um, I'm, I'm about to, I think today they're putting out a press release for this podcast that I'm working on um, called wheels off. That's just these 30 minute conversations with artists and other creative types about the creative process and the creative life. Like I believe in it adamantly as mm -hmm. being sort of the meaning of life is to create mm -hmm. so, uh, you know service and creation these are the things i think give meaning to a life that could otherwise be feel really empty and so for me it's always been about loving other people and creating creating every day and so my kids see that and i think like it would be so redundant for me at this point to recommend that life to them because they know and um and if anything i think for them to do something that they might be afraid I didn't see as creative, I think they would, they would 
feel like, oh, I can't tell dad that I want to whatever. I, I don't think they would ever feel like that. But uh, but I my point is that they know that I'm all for them doing it. Um, but I guess what I know from the inside of it is that it wouldn't matter what I say. Like if they are meant to do music or any some kind of weird art, acting, whatever, uh, writing kids books, um, they're going to do that. And if if they're going to be swayed by me telling them they should or they shouldn't, then then there's something fundamentally wrong with their own sort of self-awareness. I want them to know and I want them to know uh, beyond any um, point where my opinion even matters. Um, is there ever a time, though, in that in that lifestyle, you know, that creating where you get to just sit back and, and, and breathe? You know, I mean, you just came out with an album a couple of months ago. This book is done. It comes out in a couple of months from now. Um, but it, like, do you get it? Do you ever get a chance to be like, OK, now that album is done. That book is done. I can just sit back and breathe. Or is it always looking to the next thing, promoting that past thing and, and just working twice as hard to get it out there? I feel like I was more frantic when I was younger. Um, but I don't like the idea of downtime. Mm. It's funny because my my wife uh, has worked a lot of jobs and has worked really hard at different things, but she loves vacations and she loves sitting on a beach. In fact, we're leaving on Friday to go on this outlaw country cruise for Sirius XM radio. Um, well, that sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, but it's five days and I'll be working on four of those days yeah. and it's easy work. It's just, you know, maybe 75 minutes of rock and roll. But um She's so excited. And for me, the idea of like sitting on a beach, uh, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. So I always have my guitar. I, I love to write songs. It's that thing. It's I, like for me, that's the point. That's the purpose. You know, I, I want to be creating something every day, not because I'm trying to like fend off the Grim Reaper. I just it it's it brightens every day. Like it's it's the thing that I love to do. You know, it's like oxygen. I want it. But I do sometimes feel like I'm a shark, like I can't stop swimming or I'll die. So that's sort of the dark side of it. And sometimes I have to tell myself, hey, stop. Today we're going to go play in the snow and build a snowman with the kids. And nobody has to write a song today. Everything's fine. Yeah. Do you write every day or do you make a habit out of it? Uh, I don't write every day. I think I used to more. Now that's just the list of to-do is so mm. long. Yeah. Um but I love to write every day, and I try to write every day, but I don't get to. You think you have more poems than you? Kids' poems? I do. I mean, I've already got a bunch. There was one that got cut from the book because it was too dark. Um, you know, the, the issues – and I'm really glad because it's something that um, – it's something that I don't know. Because my friends and I growing up, there was a lot of jokes that were just like, you know, save the most horrible thing you could say to try and shock everyone. And that's – that's yeah. something that in our culture has gone too far. And, and I, and I'm really glad that growing up, we weren't being filmed and put on the internet. And my, my, my kids right now are really having to deal with their friends getting suspended for jokes that go beyond the pale. So, but I'm, I don't know that I have the best uh, radar about stuff like that. There was one poem that I'd written that was going to be in the collection and it was called the way that I am. And in the way that I am, it's a narrator who is talking about all the things about his body that are ugly and he says you know um uh, uh two of my toes are shaped like shrimp that's why i can never wear sandals i i have to wear shirts when i'm out on the beach because of my jiggly love handles so 
he's going through all you know talks like all his nose and his hair and his ears mm-hmm. and his like everything and at the end of it he says um if i could find someone who would see past these things i'd probably tell them to scram i don't want anyone desperate enough to love me the way that i am mm. so he's shaming himself mm-hmm. which is clearly a bad thing but i thought it would be okay because in the end he's not only an unreliable narrator but like an unlikable narrator so he's sort of an advertisement for why it's bad to do that but man i just i think we live in a world where you really have to be careful about pointing out these things as being shameful so when they brought that up to me i was like okay i get it i you know i just I don't want to mess kids up any more than I already have. <laughs> Parenting mantra. <laughs> yeah. We're all just making it up as we go and trying not to screw them up as much, uh, too much, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we've talked a lot about fatherhood and parenthood and, and the lessons you've learned along the way. But I mean, it, 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 what is, do you think, the most important thing that you've learned about being a father? Um. You have to trust your kids and you even even when you don't want to and even when um, maybe your protective instincts are telling you don't let them make mistakes. They have to make mistakes. My dad um, used to say to me and, and, and we had a complicated relationship that had good and bad moments, but he used to say, learn from my mistakes. And I was thinking even then I would think that's not a thing. That's not really a thing. We can't do that. So I have to let my kids um, have the freedom to make mistakes. But that said, I recently had a moment where I realized, the because the, my son is older now and bigger kids, bigger problems. A lot of his friends are getting in trouble for the big kid problem stuff, you know, weed, vaping, the things that are like, I just can't even believe that they're happening in the bathroom at the high school or mm. you know the middle school. Um, but so I had to tell Max, uh, I expect, I anticipate that you will make mistakes, but I expect you to not do these things. So I have this expectation of you, and if you do those things, I'm going to not only be disappointed, but I'll also be angry. And I think the kids need that. It's just, it's not, I grew up in a rock and roll world, you know, I like, there are no rules, but there have to be rules. Mm-hmm. And. And I think he was really grateful to hear that because it also let him know that I was watching him and in the good way and in the bad way and the good way. Like, I love you. I have your back. I'll never not love you. But man, I want you to make good choices. Yeah. Make good choices. That's that's what I tell my kids. You know, it's like, it's only so much you can do. My kids are younger. They're only seven and nine. But it's, you know, even now I can see see the bigger stuff coming. And it's heartbreaking too because you know, you know, these years, I mean, you're right on the brink of it, but the the, ad, the years of adolescence, just the, the things that happened that hurt me when I was that age, um, but I lived through them, and that are now, my kids are finding out about, they're just so hard, and they break your heart as a parent to watch them, yeah. and you want them never to happen, but that's not realistic. In right. fact, it would be terrible if your kids never experienced heartbreak or any kind of pushback from the universe. They have to. Right. You know, it makes it makes them stronger. Right. It's just we never had to deal with our mistakes getting put on YouTube. Yes. My yeah. kid's school has been under lockdown twice this year already. For yeah. gun stuff? Gun stuff. Oh, 
I'm sorry. Well, I live I live in Pittsburgh, so their school's about four blocks from the synagogue where the shooting was. Oh. And they were on lockdown the next day, and then they got they had the lockdown last week, but it was for it turned out to be for something across the street. But yeah, it was still gun stuff. So had a, had a weird moment last year when there was the one day when the kids did the walkout from the school, and mm. it was a na- nationwide mm. walkout, and I had forgotten all about it. And so I had gone out to breakfast. I I think I'd gone to a yoga class. I was having a really sweet, peaceful day, and I drove past my kids' school, and I saw them all walking out. And I and I started thinking, what is happening? You know, going through my mind of all the horrible things. And then I realized that and I could see my daughter there in the crowd. And I realized they were having to walk out of their school because of guns. And I I couldn't take it. I started crying yeah. that, that they have to grow up in this world. Yeah. But it's you know, what's the alternative? I, I want them growing up. I want them now in this world. And you know what? I watch them. I watch the way they think about these things and the way they feel motivated and empowered to make changes and I think there's no way that they're not going to go out there and, and help make it a better place they have to man they're our only hope at this point <laughs> my six year old daughter goes to me the other day can I call Trump an asshole and I said <laughs> yes you may like, thank you <laughs> homewards and schoolwards <laughs> there you go exactly <laughs> um Red, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. I don't know if you have the book next to you, but I was wondering if you could maybe read us one of the poems. They just sent me the hard... Yay, yeah. I've got it too. It's so great. Hey, I love oh, it. Cool. <laughs> All right. Yeah, did you have a poem in mind? Um, you mentioned Brotherly Love. That's kind of one of our favorites. You can read that one. Thanks. I would love that. I love that one. Oh, I, I, I was reading it at my kids' hockey practice, and then I showed it to my husband, and people kept coming over to see what we were reading. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, there was, I, you know, I met with a bunch of editors during the process of finding a home for these poems, and my main, um, my main concern was that I get with a house that appreciated that it was okay to have some darkness. Yeah. And I know in the end they they did have me soften some things. There's a poem called How to Play Baseball. And at the end of it, the pitcher, who's the coach's son, throws a baseball at his dad. In the original version, it hit him right between the eyes. Oh, no. And they were like, (laughs) yeah, that's a little too violent. Jamie and I have actually talked to several writers who have done YA horror and about why that's important. And they all agree with you that it is important because – for you know exactly why exactly the reasons you said yeah well i mean it's like the things that we are allowed to do in real life and there's things that we get away with doing on a page in a book or in our fantasies and it's okay you know it's okay nobody's going to get through life without fantasizing about doing things to people that are, they're upset with you know yeah. all the time yeah <laughs> this one I mean... <laughs> speaking of which um all right so this is brotherly love from no more poems by me Rhett Miller. Please don't push your brother out the window, little miss. I know he's asking for it. I am quite aware of this. But if you push your brother out the window, he'll go splat. And once he's squished, there isn't any coming back from that. Please don't drown your brother in the bathtub, sweetie pea. He can be a twerp sometimes, I know, believe you me. But if you dunk him three times, and he only comes up two... The cops will be all over us. There's nothing I can do. 
If you take a pillow and you smother brother's head, I've got a strong suspicion that he just might wake up dead. Or worse, he'd be a vegetable. Oh, bitter irony. He hasn't eaten one of those in his whole history. Darling little girl, I know exactly who they'd blame if you go pouring gasoline and setting him aflame. You're much too young to shoulder such responsibility. I'm the one they'd cart off to the penitentiary. If you tie your brother to an active railroad track, I'm the one they'll take away, never to come back. Feed your brother poison, maybe drop him down a well, and I'm the one who'll wind up living in a prison cell. And so I beg you, honey pie, ignore your dark desires. Maybe give his dirt bike a couple of flat tires, or if he's by a swimming pool, give a gentle shove. But please, my angel, show a little brotherly love. I love it. As, as, as the father of two with an older daughter and a little brother, I totally relate to this one. <laughs> my daughter is younger, but she's definitely the more vengeful of the two of my children. Yeah, that's my situation, too. <laughs> Rhett, thank you so much for your thank time. You this so has been much. awesome. Hey, thank you so much for being my very first kids book podcast, and I'm so happy. I had so much fun. I'm honored. This has been fantastic. <laughs> This has been The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I'm Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>